spring in Japan is a um, it's a time for resetting things and, and renewing things. Like the weather does start to warm up and the leaves start to come out and plants start to grow again. And if you've been following our announcements, you'd see that one of our ministries, our coffee house ministry, which has been going for 22 years straight, uh, is also kind of going through a reset of its own. So what we've been doing is uh, taking a break for a few months to, to review and to evaluate and then to commit ourselves to pray and then do uh, any adjusting or refocusing as necessary. You know, I, I really believe that every ministry needs to be reviewed and reassessed from time to time. The question, though, is what, what do we use to uh, evaluate and assess things? What standards do we use to assess church ministries? What are we measuring and what criteria are we measuring it by? You know, these are important questions for any of us who are in leadership of any kind. But I realize they're also important for us as a church, as a whole, as a congregation to grapple with. And so, uh, as Ron said, he uh, suggested this would probably be a good time in the first Sunday of April from the English Council to uh, share some of the things that have uh, been uh, we've been thinking through and then to define and to lay out some foundational principles or standards, I guess you could say. I like the word touchstones. So I'm going to use that word, touchstones for evaluating all of our church ministries and then at the same time spell out what are our core values as a church as a whole. Does everybody know what a touchstone is? Now, originally, a touchstone was a, a dark stone, either uh, jasper or schist, and uh, it was used to test gold. And what you'd do is you'd take some gold, you'd rub it on the touchstone, and depending on the color of the mark that was made on the stone, you can tell how pure the gold is. Of course, now we have a lot more precise ways of testing gold, but that's how we came to our present meaning of touchstone. And of course, a touchstone in our present-day vocabulary basically means a standard or a reference point by which we measure other things. So we have four of them. So our first ministry touchstone has to do with our core message. What is our core message as a church? Well, our core message as a church has to be the gospel. It has to be the gospel of salvation. The gospel is the only way given to man of eternal salvation. It's the only message of eternal salvation. Is there any other message on earth that's more important than that? When we really think it through, is there any other message that's more important than the message of eternal salvation. And there's a word I want to focus in on here, and that is that the church, the church has been entrusted with this message. The church has been entrusted with the message of eternal salvation. The government has not been entrusted with that message. The media does not have it. Education does not have it. Philosophy does not have it. Science does not have it. 
and the world's religions do not have it. We've been entrusted with what Jude calls the faith. I'm an English teacher, and I teach a whole section on ah and the. (laughs) And when it says the faith, that means there is only one. There is not another one. There's not another one coming. There's only one message. There's only one faith. And that is the faith which was once for all, once for all handed down to the saints. And it's a message of eternal consequence. And that means nothing else on earth is more important than that message. Back in the uh, early 1990s, just after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the Evangelical Free Church Mission saw an opportunity that there had not been for 70 years. At that time, nobody knew how long of a window of opportunity we might have. In fact, Russia's pretty much closed down now for missions. But uh, because we didn't know, there was a sense of urgency. So instead of recruiting missionaries and then sending them off to candidate training and then putting them into language school for two years and then finally putting them into ministry, they felt it would be wiser to go right in and reach people who already had some English knowledge, people like English teachers or professors, and then they could reach their own people with the gospel. So we kind of wanted to get in there right away and establish a ministry beachhead. So they formed up some teams of teachers from the U.S. and Canada to conduct uh, summer English institutes. In our case, it was in Ukraine. We got the cooperation of a big public university in the city there, and the program was really popular. We had hundreds of students and professors and their students and teachers of all kinds. And we had to turn people away. But the deal was with the university that in addition to teaching our English courses, we would have a daily chapel service as well. It was voluntary, but it was a daily platform from which to explain and teach the gospel, to systematically teach the gospel. Well, the university, of course, wasn't that enthusiastic about that at first, and that's no surprise. But some of the teachers also wanted to downplay the chapel and wanted to put more time and focus on our professionalism and the quality of our English courses. And uh, the team leader basically said, why did we come to Ukraine? Why did we come all the way here so that our students could go to hell with better English? You see, we had been sent to Ukraine entrusted with something much more valuable than our professionalism or our skill set. We can't expect people to get the gospel by osmosis or come to an understanding of the faith because we're so nice and professional. Romans 10.17, we've been through Romans in the last several months, but Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Comes by the word. By the way, that summer institute, three churches came out of that in that city. In other cities, other churches as well that are still going. 
That's the fruit of the gospel. So, in the same way, the MCC English Department, with all our ministries, the gospel has got to be heard. It's got to be heard. It's got to be at the core of our message because we've been entrusted with it. So we have to be faithful in declaring it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And being entrusted with it also means we need to guard it. We need to guard it. The gospel is constantly under attack. And not just from the world, but also from within the Christian world. That's why Jude starts that verse up there. The beginning of that verse is, I felt the necessity to write, appealing that you contend earnestly. And contend means to fight for, if necessary. To contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And then he goes on in the rest of that book to warn about false teaching in the church. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And besides guarding it, we must never compromise it. It's very common in our modern evangelical world to try to make the gospel easier. We don't want people to reject the gospel, so we make it easier. Maybe we're afraid that people won't like the taste of it, so we water it down. Or we try to add a lot more other flavor to kind of mask the flavor. We try to make the narrow gate a little bit wider. We try to make the narrow road a little bit broader. And we, uh, we shy away from talking about things like sin and judgment and repentance. So along with this, what I really probably should have added on here is that we also should not be ashamed of the gospel. We all know the verse Paul says, in uh, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So our part then is to be faithful to the true biblical gospel message. It's God's power, but our part is to be faithful to it. We need to accept the fact that there will be rejection. Not everyone is going to accept it. Paul said the cross is a stumbling block and the the word of the cross is foolishness Mm -hmm. to those who are perishing. But then he adds, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we don't need to worry. The power of the gospel doesn't depend on our delivery style, thankfully, Mm -hmm. or how persuasive we are. The power of the gospel is the spirit of God. Our responsibility, again, is to present it faithfully and accurately. 
a lot more we could say about this, but you know, basically it boils down to this. The MCC has been entrusted with a treasure, the gospel of salvation. And if we fail to make use of that, that's a serious shortcoming. That doesn't mean that all of our ministries are necessarily evangelistic. We'll come back to this again in a little bit. But we need to make sure that no one slips through the cracks as far as a clear understanding of the gospel is concerned. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it. So we have a gospel mandate. Our next touchstone really comes down to what is our guide? Our primary guide that governs our ministries. What is that? Well, it's not the culture. Either Western culture or Japanese culture or popular culture. And it's not popular Christian culture. It's not popular Christian trends or ministry styles. Our guide is the scripture. The scripture. That means the Christian books are not the standard of any of our ministries, even ones by famous authors or theologians or Christian celebrities. Of course, we know that some of those are good and some of them are very helpful. There's lots of books that are very good and helpful and there's Bible study series and there's, there's things like the Truth Project that we do use. So we're not saying that we're rejecting any extra biblical sources. But those things are not the primary guide. Scripture is the primary guide. The Bible is the standard or touchstone by which all those other things are evaluated and examined. The Bible alone is the written word of God. No other book makes that claim. But the Bible, the scripture alone is God's written word. And because it is God's word, we honor it, we stand on its truth, and we submit to its authority. There's a lot more we could say about this, but this is important because if the scripture goes, the gospel goes. So let me just simplify it this way, if I could. There's basically two ways we can approach the scripture, and it's really a hard issue. We can either take a high view of scripture, and that is where we hold the scripture high, placing it over us, over ourselves, and letting it judge us. Or we can take a low view of scripture where we come at it from above, analyze it, you know, trying to interpret it through our own modern cultural filters and standards, and sometimes even our own sense of values. When people read the Bible, sometimes you hear the comment, well, this can't be true because it's, it's so unfair. Or, you know, a loving God couldn't possibly judge people in hell for eternity. Or, uh, but, but science says that the earth has to be billions of years old. See, that was the attitude a couple hundred years ago when uh, what's called higher criticism swept through seminaries in Europe. And it was devastating to the church in Europe. Many churches died spiritually as a result of the higher criticism. Read church history. 
it eventually pulled in most of the mainline denominations and seminaries in North America as well. Pulling them into doubting and denying the reliability and inerrancy of scripture. So if you wonder why we have schools like Princeton and Harvard, Yale, Temple University, International Christian University, where except for a few faithful faculty and staff, they have completely lost their gospel message. That's basically where it started, and that's where it's led. In fact, if we look at most churches and denominations and seminaries that are now spiritually dead, we see that in most cases, the first visible point of departure was loosening their grip on the word of God. And it's not just a modern problem. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Indeed, has God really said? That question is pushed at us to this day. So, with scripture, we can either take our scalpel to it and uh, carve it up and kind of shape it into the way we like, or we can submit to it as a scalpel and let it be to us, as like Hebrews 4.12 says, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Greek word for sword there means like a short sword, kind of like a butcher knife, you know, used to carve up meat. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this is the understanding and the attitude that we all need, not just their ministries, but we all need to have in approaching the word of God. There's one more thing, a couple more things I want to add to this. We need to strive to accurately handle it in all that we teach. And Paul said again, this is, in, this is to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. A few years ago, actually many years ago now, I was teaching a Sunday school class here, and we were doing a book study. It was a very popular Christian book at that time. So all I'm going to say is this. It was because it was so loose in the way that it handled the scripture, I couldn't finish the study. I had to quit halfway through. And uh, it was easy to think, you know, hey, this is a super popular Christian book. It was written by the pastor of a huge church, published by a very well-known Christian publisher, and endorsed by some very well-known Christian people. But those are not the standards. The scripture, the scripture in an accurate translation is the standard. So all of us who lead church ministries, we need to be very careful and very discerning in what sources we go to and what sources we lead others to. James 3.1 says that those who teach will incur or will have a stricter judgment. So going back to Hebrews 4.12, just for a second, it starts out like this. For the word of God is living and active 
and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and active because its author is living. And not just active, but he's living and he's present. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So we're talking about something supernatural, something beyond human understanding and reason. Without the Holy Spirit, the scripture can and will be distorted in every conceivable way. You don't have to go very far, but uh, liberal preachers come up with messages that are just bizarre. Sometimes they even make points that are the exact opposite of what the passage is saying. It's like they... It's like they can't get it. So when Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So without the Holy Spirit, both the teacher and the hearer are lost. So before we move on, let me just emphasize again. In all our ministries at MCC, we stand on the word of God, but we don't reject all extra biblical resources. We do use them. The main issue here is because there's just so much stuff out there even really popular stuff. Everything that ranges from like theologically weak to outright heresy. So again, we just need to be very careful and discerning and give due diligence in examining and assessing by scriptural standards all the materials that we adopt or adapt for our ministries. This is our church's statement of faith. The first article, because everything else comes from it. All our understanding comes from it. The Evangelical Free Church believes the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, to be the inspired word of God without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men, and the divine and final authority for all Christian faith and life. That's outreach, and that's discipleship. Now, this was written over 65 years ago, but we hold to it. God's word is perfect and sufficient, and therefore the foundational guide for all our gospel evangelism and discipleship. Third touchstone. Third touchstone is about procedure which is basically, what do we do to accomplish things? So we can also call it, I like to call it our key strategy, our strategy. And our key strategy is not strategizing. It's not strategizing, it's not brainstorming, it's not studying, it's not consulting, it's not good organization, it's not creativity or innovation, it's not seeking out giftedness or talent. And it's not even dedication and diligence. It's prayer. It's prayer. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those other things. 
Those are all good things in and of themselves. No ministry should be disorganized. Nobody's served well by poor planning. And dedication and diligence are totally essential. And God himself gifts people for ministry. So we're not trying to downplay those things. But those things in themselves will not sustain an effective ministry. Because true church ministries are not simply organized programs and events. True church ministry is spiritual work. So we're not just talking about routine prayers here, you know, asking God's blessing on our programs and activities, but coming to him, coming before him with faith according to his will. And that means that our prayers will be informed by scripture. We ask and submit to his guidance and direction to do his work in his way. It's his work. And we need his empowering because God's work is a spiritual work. It's a heart work. And it's way beyond our human reach. So, in that way, we ask him to do his work of grace in the hearts of those we minister to. You know, we've learned that we can design programs and we can plan events, but only God can do the inner heart work. We're called as a church to a task that we cannot do on our own power. So we depend on prayer. You know, Jesus sent his disciples out. He sent them out to preach and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. But it was by his power and authority. When there was a huge crowd of thousands of people who were hungry, Jesus said, You give them something to eat. So the disciples did what they were told to do, and Jesus did what only he could do. There's a uh, a striking example of church prayer in Acts 4. In Acts 4, after the apostles had been hauled up in front of the Jewish leaders and threatened to stop preaching about Jesus, they went back to their companions, it says, and when everyone heard what had happened, they went to prayer. And their prayer was remarkable. They didn't pray and ask God to take away all their troubles. It says, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. First, they declared God's power as creator of all things. They declared God's truth by quoting from scripture, from quoting from Psalms. And then they affirmed the truth of those passages in their current situation. And then they acknowledged God's sovereignty. And then they made the request. And the request was not, you know, oh Lord, rescue us from this. The request was, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with confidence. Sounds a bit like our first touchstone. That's what they were called to do. So grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's what God does. So in short, their prayer is basically help us to do what we are called to do. Help us to be obedient and please do what only you can do. And then it says, 
And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. That is an effective prayer meeting. There's an extra point there I just want to just touch on here. You know the phrase at the beginning of that, with one accord, with one accord they lifted up their voices. You know, we can attest to this in a small way in our Wednesday night prayer meeting, that when we come together for prayer, for prayer of that nature, that does far more for our unity and fellowship than any fellowship event or committee meeting. That's where the fellowship, that's where the unity is. I just wish I'd learned that earlier. So let me just summarize this touchstone in this way, because we as a church are called to a task beyond human capability. We depend on prayer. All right, and that's because the next stone, the last one, is our outcome. And it really isn't our outcome, because the outcome that we're after is really nothing less than new life. New life. It's not just about helping people or making their lives better or fostering international friendships or helping people find purpose or helping people feel loved and accepted or making them religious. The real outcome is new spiritual life. That's definitely something that we cannot make happen. Like we saw with prayer, this is a spiritual work that's far beyond all human ability. Only the Holy Spirit gives life through spiritual rebirth. And that's where the gospel is, the power of God for salvation. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual rebirth, making actual new creations of those who believe the word of truth and obey the gospel. It's got to be real. It's got to be real. That's what draws the distinction between those who know Jesus Christ and those who only know about Jesus Christ. And it's not just us knowing him, but it's us being known by him. It's a relationship. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. I'm sure everybody's heard that catchphrase, but that's true. Of course, we want people's lives to be improved. We want them to have a sense of purpose. We want people to feel loved and accepted, of course. And for those of us who are involved in ICF, international friendships are great. But those are secondary blessings. They're a result of the primary outcome. What really matters is that people are reconciled to God. Let me just read from uh, 2 Corinthians 5. It's a few verses here. Because it really pertains to what we're talking about here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. It's from God. It's from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And here we go. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's our first touchstone. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. And that should be the heart cry of all our ministries, from the worship service to all of our outreach or discipleship ministries. So that means all of our church ministries, whether evangelistic or discipling, must be soul-focused. Soul-focused. I mean, for one thing, if you don't have new life, there can't be discipleship. You cannot disciple someone who hasn't been born again or doesn't have new life in them. It's a non-starter. So redeemed souls are the fruit, the eternal fruit. Is there any greater outcome that we could hope for? The soul is eternal. Nothing else lasts beyond this life. Everything else is temporal. You notice that every one of these They all depend on God's work. They all depend on God's real work. The first three, they do call for faithfulness and responsibility on our part. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The scripture is the word of God, authored and illuminated and living and active. And it's not living and active because we animate it when we read it. It's living and active because the Holy Spirit is present and living in us. And prayer is dependence on God to do what only he can do so that we can do what we've been called to do but are not capable of doing on our own. And new life, I mean, that goes without saying. At the same time, again, though, we are called to be faithful and diligent in regard to the gospel and the scripture and prayer. Anything else you notice there? These are simple. They're not easy. They're not easy, but they are simple. They're very basic. There's nothing clever or profound. There's nothing original or innovative about it. So why do this? And this is why it's been weighing on me, because when we look at church history, We know that it's just a matter of time. And most churches will let go of these things and will lose them. It's true. You don't have to study church history deeply. You don't have to look very far. And if we think that that could never happen to us at MCC, we need to think again especially at this time in history, we're literally bombarded with things that, that draw us away, even from within our Christian world, things that diminish the gospel, 
things that undercut the scripture, things that distract us from prayer. There's a reason why the New Testament says again and again, stand firm, hold fast, be steadfast. And that's why all of us, especially those who are in any kind of leadership, need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant. One of the last things Paul said to the Ephesian elders before he finally said goodbye to them, he said he would never see them again. And one of the last things he said was, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Be on guard. And that's why we establish these standards. It's not about the council micromanaging all the different ministries that we have, but just rather establishing some parameters, some touchstones, or even you could call it an anchor point to help us stay true to our calling as a church and uh, that we're ultimately all pulling in the same direction. There's lots more we could say about this. I just add this, though. These are only words. Words don't guarantee any future. It's in our heart. It's got to be our heart. In Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus is talking to the seven churches, the first church was Ephesus. He commended them for many things. Everything about their ministry stuff was good. But one thing he said was, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Departing from Scripture may be the first visible departure, but I believe there's one step before that that's invisible, and that is, is Jesus Christ our first love? Because if Jesus Christ is our first love, we will stand on the truth of Scripture. We will hold his word up. We will pray in spirit and in truth. And we will be compelled to share the gospel of salvation and stay true to it and guard it and defend it. But that's the heart issue.